Hi, I'm Gabby Herculano. And I'm Shella Lika. And this is Climate Talk with Gabby and Shella, a weekly podcast in which we talk to an array of fascinating people from all corners of the business and financial world about their solutions for creating a decarbonized planet and a climate habitable for all. Come join us as we push toward a greener future. We're going to be talking to Megan Green today. She is a senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School. She's the global chief economist at the Pro Institute. She's had a number of very interesting articles. One very recently that I'm curious to ask her more about, which is about the cost of this transition that we think a lot about, the transition to greener, more sustainable economies. So we can't wait to have her on and ask her all our questions. Let's talk to her. Megan, we're delighted to have you here. We're big fans. We thought we could start with our usual question on your background and your journey. I understand that at first, when you were uh, a freshman uh, in college, you were pursuing a degree in molecular biology. So tell us more about being an accidental economist and your journey so far. Yeah, so you're right. I was a molecular biology major for most of college and then at the very last minute switched to economics and politics. Um, And I was probably better at molecular biology, if I'm really honest, but I just really liked economics and politics. Um, I lived abroad. I lived in Germany when I was younger, but grew up mostly in the States. And I think that experience just made me interested in the world around me and how it fits together in economics is one way to approach that. Politics, sociology, anthropology, those are all other ways. But I chose economics just because I liked it. That being said, I didn't work as an economist for a number of years. I worked at an investment bank. I was an advisor to the Prince of Liechtenstein. I taught at a boarding school. <laughs> I did a number of things before I ended up working as an economist and really moving up the learning curve in terms of applied macroeconomics. And now I love it. I feel really lucky to have discovered what I really like to do, but it wasn't a linear path there at all. I took many, many different twists and turns to get there. But I do think economics is a good way. It's a good framework for trying to understand how the whole world fits together. Well, and now you are incredibly accomplished and, uh, you know, a welcome voice on the scene on all kinds of macro matters. One thing I wanted to ask about, which is very topical, is the recent article that you published in the FT. COP26, of course, it's getting a lot of press, and we've heard the prime minister talking about how it's easy to be green. And your article was saying, not exactly the contrary, but we need to weigh up all the different factors. Could you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts there and what informed your approach? Yeah, sure. So uh, my argument is that it's really not easy to be green and the proof is in the pudding. That's why we haven't done it yet. But when I when I dug into what the green transition will actually entail if we want to hit our targets that we've all committed to, it turns out that the adjustment that we'll have to make, it's pretty massive. Um, so if you dig into some of the calculations, a bunch of different organizations, the IMF, the OECD, the Bank of England, the ECB have all come up with their estimate for what the global price of carbon is right now, whether that's explicit or implicit through regulation. And on average, it's around $10 per ton. To hit our targets by uh, 2050, we need that price of carbon to increase to $60 a ton 
and move up to $75 a ton by 2030. That's a huge adjustment. And that's actually the most conservative, really, estimate. The other, many others are even higher. Um, if we end up decarbonizing, which is what we're trying to achieve with the green transition, we end up putting a price on something that was previously free. And so necessarily the price of that is going to go up, which means all our energy costs are going to rise. But that also means that energy as an input to almost every good we produce will cause goods prices to increase as well pretty significantly. So there will be a huge supply side shock to the economy if we actually manage to achieve our targets. And that in and of itself is debatable. But if that's what we're trying to achieve, then I think we should be honest and prepared for these big costs that we're going to incur. And of course, not everyone will incur it equally. We're going to create winners and losers from this transition. And in digging into this, it really reminded me of the globalization debates that we had as China joined the WTO. And I think macroeconomists looked at what would happen to an economy as a result of increased competition from China. And we sort of said, well, over time and in aggregates, people will shift into new jobs, industries will shift, and overall the economy will be better off. And as it turns out, that may be true, but there were real losers in the immediate term. And we weren't really honest about that. We didn't plan for how to compensate them. And I think we're sort of setting ourselves up for the same mistake with climate. And the result of this globalization, the huge backlash against globalization that we're seeing right now. And so I'm, I'm arguing that there are big upfront costs. We need to be honest about them. We need to figure out how to compensate the losers because we just don't have time for the kind of backlash with climate that we've seen with globalization. So policymakers, I think, are keen to highlight the opportunities that exist for the economy as a result of the green transition. And there certainly are many over the medium to long term, but there are some real upfront costs as well. So how do we connect what is currently going on with the economy with that sort of longer term risk, right? You were recently also talking about productivity growth and, and how that is almost everything in the post-recovery world. So how do you connect that, what is going on right now, with this long-term decarbonization journey? So I think actually on the productivity front, climate does actually present an opportunity over time. So I think the, the costs will incur pretty immediately. But over time, if you look at green jobs, uh, they tend to be higher wage, higher hour jobs than fossil fuel jobs. Um, and so if you consider that we've mainly been creating low wage, low hour jobs across the developed world in particular, um, then this is a way to kind of upgrade our workforce, particularly if you consider that what we really need is infrastructure in, to facilitate the green transition. Well, infrastructure spending jobs are also really high wage, high hour jobs, high productivity jobs. And so, you know, back in the 1960s, two thirds of what we consume were goods and goods producing jobs are high wage, high hour jobs. Now, two thirds of what we consume are services and services producing jobs are low wage, low hour jobs. So most of the jobs, majority of the jobs that we've been adding in the U.S., but also across Europe to the labor market have been, you know, sort of at or slightly above minimum wage, low hour kind of hourly services jobs. And that has caused a whole bunch of issues in terms of income inequality, social uh, fractures. And so if, if what we need to do is upgrade our labor market, 
this is a good way to actually start to do it. It's not the only way, but it's certainly one way. And so that is a real opportunity that comes out of the green transition. It's just that opportunity might take a while to kick in. Particularly if you're hanging your hat on infrastructure jobs, there tend not to be many shovel-ready infrastructure projects. And while there's loads for us to do on climate, um, to get it through the pipeline takes a while. So it won't necessarily be front-loaded if what we do is invest in green infrastructure. It might take a while. So in medium to long term, that could boost productivity growth, which should increase living standards. But in the short term, you have to make that adjustment and it probably is not enough to offset the upfront costs that I was discussing before that will come out of the green transition. It's all fascinating because as we as we talk about it, we do say it is a structural shift occurring. And I know the UK government, for instance, has been under criticism that they're not focusing enough on that productivity factor. So in the scenario that you're talking about with this shift, which might not be uh, creating enough jobs, I guess, you know, it, these are such big questions. But to what extent is the answer something like the universal credit scheme where we say, well, wards jobs are moving towards um, you know, services, not everybody will be able to participate in that. So to what extent is it a solution that involves that versus, as you said, a short-term solution where perhaps labor markets are less flexible uh, to move and be skilled up? So I think that in the short term, creating programs to sort of transfer towards those who lose out is probably the best way to go. And then, you know, as the productivity gains kick in, you can phase those out. Also, over the medium to long term, I think investing in education, which includes retraining and retooling workers so that they can shift from sectors that just aren't coming back after the pandemic into these more productive sectors where we will be creating jobs. I have to say, I don't know a single country that's good at that. Um, there just isn't one. We're all sort of equally bad at it. And the problem is, is that, you know, the benefits of that don't pay off within an election cycle. So it's hard for politicians to focus and burn political capital on that kind of initiative. But I think this is a, a real opportunity, given that you have a lot of popular support behind a green transition. Um, although in the U.S., I will highlight that's incredibly politicized. So it's more difficult there than it is, for example, in Europe, I think introducing kind of a, a universal basic income system is problematic, mostly because you end up paying people for their leisure time. And I think the issues aren't really economic so much as social. A lot of people generate self-worth out of having a purpose, which is often defined, self-defined by people having a job, um, contributing at work. And so um, I think there's a problem if we start paying people to stay home play video games instead of going out uh, and applying themselves in whatever job they may pursue. You also recently talked about boosting brain health as a key way to a thriving economy. How do you connect boosting brain health with all that we just talked about? Yeah, so I've really become aware of this because of the pandemic, actually. If you look at the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the U.S.'s statistics on depression and anxiety among workers based on surveys, it's unbelievably high. At its peak during the pandemic, I think it was four times the historical average, or the, sorry, the average just before the pandemic. It's since come down from there. But as we've wondered in the U.S. and also across Europe, we have a bunch of job openings, but unemployment still remains higher than it was before the pandemic. 
this seems an obvious answer to me that it's because a lot of people are affected by depression and anxiety and can't go out and find a job as much as they want to. So I think that's that's one issue. You also have considerations about brain health over the course of a life cycle. So uh, there's an issue of older workers, right? We had a number of people retire early during the pandemic who had been planning on retiring later, maybe, but decided that they might as well now. But brain health might fit into that as older people find their productivity decreasing. And insofar as we discussed before, that productivity is kind of the key to improving standards of living. One way to boost productivity is to have more workers. You can do that through immigration. That's pretty politically difficult. A less politically difficult way is to actually improve workers' brain capital or brain health over the course of their lifespan. So have workers be more productive later on in life or to bring people who are unable to work back into the workforce. That seems not to, no pun intended, but that seems like a no-brainer for me. Um, And it turns out, We actually have the science available to measure brain health, and we have the tools and exercises you can do to boost your brain health relative to your potential. I've come across this for what it's worth through really interesting work that the OECD is doing in this area specifically. It's the NIAC group within the OECD, but they're looking into you know, how we can manage brain health. And this becomes important as we think about shifts in the labor market, as we've been discussing, because a lot of companies have taken the opportunity during the pandemic to automate and to digitalize, to invest in technological innovation, which is great and will boost productivity growth. But it also means that different skills will be needed in the future for workers than what are needed now. And so if you can use measurements and exercises of brain health to help workers shift so that they can maximize the skills that we'll need, which mainly increase, you know, involve people skills, so management skills, the ability to empathize, things like that. If you can focus on that with workers, then this fear that robots are going to steal all our jobs needn't really be a fear because you can pivot the labor market so that they can do things that machines just by definition can't do, certainly not yet, but may never be able to do so that we don't need to worry about a universal basic income supporting the vast majority of the population. Focusing on brain health and boosting it is another way to achieve that. It's fascinating. And I'm sure so many listeners would be interested from a personal perspective, as well as employers thinking about it. So we'll make sure to post those links um, alongside the video. Could we move to some of your macro sort of thoughts um, in the current economy? It's been so much in the press. The UK seems to be headed for 4% inflation this year. People are worried again about that inflation without the increase in productivity. What are your own thoughts in the sort of very short to medium term about where that's headed? Yeah, so the UK has uh, this unique factor, Brexit, (laughs) which um, unfortunately does end up pushing up prices. It creates all kinds of supply disruptions on top of the normal supply disruptions, which we would already be seeing and we are seeing in other parts of the world. And so I think the risk of higher, sustained higher inflation is greater in the UK than it is in the rest of the developed world. And that's not really baked into the Bank of England's forecasts, incidentally, I mean. They expect inflation to be higher, but then to sort of subside. I think the UK is withdrawing its accommodation faster than most other countries. And that was always predictable and predicted. You know, you had 
the chancellor of the exchequer, Rishi Sunak, joking about taking away Boris Johnson's credit cards very early on in this pandemic when it was frankly totally inappropriate because we needed to stabilize the economy. And you knew you had leaked documents from the Treasury about potential pension and tax hikes later on to pay for this crisis. And so it's not a surprise that the UK has always been preoccupied by this question of how we're going to pay for this war. And they're pursuing it by withdrawing a combination earlier than everyone else. Um, I think that the UK will have higher inflation for a while. It should abate, um, you know, in, in a year and a half or so, but I think it will still be higher. Uh, that it will be across the rents of the developed world, which I think will suffer from lower inflation, low growth, low rates. Again, so secular stagnation, I think, will reassert itself. Um, for the rest of the world, there's a huge debate right now in the U.S. It's all anybody ever asks me about, about whether we'll have higher inflation forever. And here I have to say I disagree with my current boss at Harvard, Larry Summers, who came out really early on and said, you know, we're overfilling the output gap with all the stimulus measures. So that should overheat the economy and drive inflation higher. I think that's one way, certainly in a traditional way of looking at the system. And so at the heart of his view is this idea that the economy has a single equilibrium and will always oscillate around that equilibrium. It's this long run potential growth rate. And the role of policy is to kind of figure out how to nudge us back to that exact long-run potential growth rate. If you talk to any other scientist who's not an economist, you'll discover that economics is literally the only field left that believes in a single equilibrium. Every other science believes in this idea of multiple equilibria. And so there are multiple planes that the economy could end up on. And if you view the world that way, then you're not so preoccupied with the size of the hole we fell down when we shut down the economy which is the output gap, how you fill that exactly, you're much more worried that things like labor market scarring and hysteresis will push us down to a fundamentally lower plane. And so if you view the world that way, using the role of policy is to prevent us from dropping down to a lower plane or even better to jump us up to a much higher plane. In which case, you're not at all worried that we're overdoing it with stimulus. You're hoping that we can use that stimulus to jump us up to a higher plane. I mean, I think that's what the Biden administration's sort of framework for thinking about this is. And it certainly matches mine and literally every other sciences. So economics is pretty um, slow on the uptake or has been slow on the uptake with this idea of multiple equilibria. But I also think if you see what's been driving up inflation. It's partly because as we reopened, demand surged massively. And you see that with a big drop in personal savings across the developed world. That's not UN specific. And then at the same time, you have this perfect storm of huge demand as stores are getting ready for the Christmas season. So we've got record imports coming into the US, for example, but Europe's facing similar data. And all these supply chain disruptions as firms try to desperately, you know, restart, they'd all run down their inventory. So restock as well. And that's pushing prices up. And I think will do until early 2023. So it's a long time when I say I think higher inflation will be transitory. Transitory can last a while in my view. But fundamentally, the things that have kept upward pressure off of inflation in the developed world have been things like higher market concentration, so superstar firms, 
in tech, for example, lower worker power with workers not joining unions as much as they did in the 1970s, for example, digitalization, technological innovation, the gig economy, all these things have been turbocharged by the pandemic. And so I think if you're looking at things in structural terms, things have just been accelerated as a result of the pandemic. And so I expect we'll probably revert to this low growth, low inflation, low rate world, you know, in two years or so. I can also say, I think peak growth is probably behind us. We had it in the second quarter of this year for the entire developed world. We'll probably accelerate after this quarter. It depends entirely on the virus. I think the third quarter was really weak in Europe and in the U.S. because of the Delta variant. We'll see if we get another variant this winter as people are all indoors again, of course. But barring that, I think we should see an acceleration from the third quarter of this year, but we won't, it won't get as good as it was uh, in the first half of this year again. We suffered this massive contraction with the pandemic and then this huge bounce back. And now we're in the kind of long, hard slog part of the recovery. Megan, we, we like to ask a, a final question that is usually uh, very forward looking. Um, um, so 2030 type of predictions. And I, I, I know that you recently also moderated a discussion with Mark Carney on his new book, How to Build a Better World. So is the world going to be a better place in 2030? Yeah, look, I'm cautiously optimistic that it will be a better place. We've seen a lot of initiatives to address inequality over the past year that I never would have dreamt of five years ago when it was me and a few other people who were really worried about this issue. And that's also been the case for climate change. So I'll say as an economist, I spend probably half my time on climate economics and climate finance now. That's not necessarily because that's that was always my background. It's just something you can't avoid anymore. And I think that's a great thing. I think, you know, policymakers have picked up the mantle some have argued that we should just let the private sector deal with this. I think if the private sector were going to deal with this, they've had ample opportunity to do that. And so I think it will take public sector incentives in order to make this transition. And the public sector governments seem to finally be on board. We've got technologies that we didn't have before. Not all of them are cheap enough to make a huge difference. But by 2030, I think we should make some gains on that. So I am encouraged, though. You know, I think it'll be really difficult to hit our targets. And I think there is a sense of urgency now that there wasn't before. Even I myself used to say climate change is the crisis that we know is coming down the pike. And you just can't say that anymore, especially after this summer. It's really clear that the crisis is actually already here. It's not coming. We are living it. And I think that that has shifted in the minds of, of many decision makers. So cautiously optimistic. Well, that's a good thought to leave on. Thank you so much for your time, Megan. It was an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on the show. And we hope to have you back again at some point in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Climate Talk is produced by Spark Network. You can listen to Climate Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your shows. To find out more about us, visit us at iClima.Earth. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.